Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the zero trust journey for agencies should really take you somewhere. Well, I appreciate the admittance that this is a journey. Uh, journey should not be confused with sightseeing tour, right? <laughs> so uh, what we're doing is as we make progress on this journey, uh, this is something that's more akin to transformation. A new way to look at customer experience might not be so new after all. They are a new way to look at it. But it's not a new way that the American people approach it. And the culture change coming through the president's management agenda. Everything that we do intentionally around communicating these values and these ideas and these tactics, I think will add up to, you know, we will see this is how we do things around here. That's what culture is. It's Thursday, April 28th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Microsoft. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs says a problem with its Genesis electronic health record system in Washington state affected DOD and Coast Guard installations using the system, too. The system went down Monday for a little more than two hours and Tuesday for more than five hours. The VA says it's still moving forward with its deployment of the EHR system this weekend in Ohio. The National Security Agency's $10 billion wild and stormy cloud contract will go to Amazon Web Services again. Microsoft protested the award to AWS in August, and the Government Accountability Office sustained that protest in October. The award's part of NSA's Hybrid Compute Initiative. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference. It's happening May 19th at the International Spy Museum, downtown D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The General Services Administration and the Federal CIO Council will publish six zero-trust playbooks in the coming months. Those playbooks are the latest tool agencies will have to implement zero-trust according to the vision of President Biden's executive order. Steve Fail is Security Chief Technology Officer for Microsoft Federal, Microsoft sponsoring today's Daily Scoop podcast. Steve, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your sense of where agencies are collectively as an enterprise and where they are individually in their zero? trust journeys. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Francis. And uh, as I look at agencies and the progress they've made uh, towards zero trust, um, I think we're at a place where finally the collective conversations have happened. So zero trust has been uh, a mark on the wall, has been something that agencies have been looking at. But now the conversations have happened and we're moving forward. Agencies are making progress. Mm -hmm. And so it might be progressing towards that first milestone. It might be realizing that you're already two milestones in before you formed your final plan. Um, and final plans are always subject to change. So we see, I think the most encouraging piece is lots of dialogue between agencies, within agencies, breaking down silos and just getting things done. And I think that's one of the benefits of the cybersecurity executive order uh, 14028 mm -hmm. is that there has been uh, an impetus to get things done. And so agencies are really leaning in, making progress and firming up plans and, and, and acting on them. Every agency person that I talk to refers to their zero trust journey. They all use the same language. They're, they're reading out of the right textbook from OMB, I suppose. But I wonder if that's the right way for agencies to be thinking about this. Obviously, it's, it strikes me it's similar to the concept of IT transformation, digital transformation that you're never done. Is that the right way to think about uh, zero trust also? 
Absolutely. In fact, I think the reason that we have a security transformation um, under the heading of zero trust is because digital transformation has driven us there. Mm-hmm. Um, as we see increased adoption of digital technology, the need to secure it uh, is, is being fundamentally challenged as well. So while I appreciate the admittance that this is a journey, uh, journey should not be confused with sightseeing tour, right? <laughs> so uh, what we're doing is as we make progress on this journey, uh, this is something that's more akin to transformation. So zero trust is that security transformation and it's based in lessons learned. Uh, we can't wait to implement lessons learned. The adversaries get a vote on what happens next. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, we need to be agile and uh, it is that transformative process for security. You referenced that some agencies obviously are at their first milestone. Some are a couple milestones in. They're seeing their plans change. How important is it to have that flexibility built into whatever your plan is, to understand that it might not look the same two or three milestones in as you think it does when you start? Well, I think the important piece is setting achievable targets. If you set an achievable target, you have less risk of of change and objective as you go along. Um, Another piece is, uh, for example, industry is collaborating with NIST around the SP1800 series. Um, When it comes to zero trust deployment, putting together prescriptive guidance for agencies to get predictable outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we really all want to align on is how do we get to predictable outcomes? How do we do it more rapidly? Where are those tried and true paths that we can that we can journey on mm-hmm. um, such that we're able to then uh, arrive at those outcomes intact and, and with a great ROI and significant time to value? So really collaboration between industry partners, cybersecurity is a team sport, um, as well as government oversight from from NIST bringing together all of those parties. Uh, We're really looking to that to accelerate agency adoption even further, because as we talk with security leaders throughout government, we hear concerns about risk in roadmap fragility. Um, and so if I plan a roadmap and things change and new technology is available, do I run risk of upending my plans? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really establishing those best practices with NIST is something that's going to give them a lot of security moving forward. We were talking before I turned the recorder on about the Zero Trust Summit that CyberScoop hosted a couple of weeks ago. You were there. I don't hear too many new things at these events. You know, I've been around this space for a while. I heard a new term there that I wonder if you can tell me more about. You wrote about it a little bit uh, not too long ago, and that's the term telemetry. What does that mean, and how does that fit into the zero trust conversation? So I actually think it's a good thing that we don't hear a lot of new things at these conferences. (laughs) It it shows the state of maturity that we've reached around the dialogue on zero trust. Um, But telemetry is, is an important factor, and what started us down this path of helping agencies with telemetry is really the OMB M2131 uh, log management requirements. So Microsoft started up a modern log management program. And we get questions a lot of, do I need logging once I have zero trust? Does it does it get me to a place where I no longer need to have logging and incident response? And, and, and the, really, the answer is that the two are complementary. Mm-hmm. And the way that we see this playing out within agencies is that those agencies that have more robust logging and telemetry programs Um, are able to utilize that telemetry to make better zero trust plans. Mm -hmm. They know where their risk is. They know what the user experience looks like. And so as a result, they're able to pick their path 
and then also validate on the back end. And so once you have, in fact, implemented the zero trust control on your next milestone, you can look for the change in telemetry. Did it have the outcome that I expected? Mm -hmm. And this is what really brings us into that predictable security arena of outcomes that align with KPIs. They're measurable. You're able to see it in the telemetry. And in some cases, uh, implementing zero trust controls gets you better telemetry as well. So we really have this cyclic improvement uh, that takes place between increased telemetry and zero trust. Is telemetry a tool or is it a concept, a component of zero trust, or is it both or something else? So I would define telemetry as data around the security events and posture. So we would look at that as opposed to customer data, something to be secured, um, to the idea of data coming from the services, systems, tools that we utilize that informs us about the cybersecurity posture. You wrote recently about the Department of Health and Human Services, and they are trying to measure the effectiveness of their cybersecurity operations, or their zero trust effort. And they're not the only ones, but uh, and and not just compliance. And that's been a complaint in this space for a thousand years is I might be compliant, but I'm not necessarily safe. I'm not necessarily secure. What are you seeing as kind of the state of the art to get to that place I'm not going to get into the compliance battle that can, I'll let GAO and the IGs worry about that, but where somebody can look at her network and say, okay, because I'm doing this as a component of my zero trust journey, I can be confident I'm more secure than I was yesterday. I think the telemetry is is one important component of that. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, you need to drive the appropriate telemetry as well with predictable uh, adversary activities. So things like adversary emulation, application security validation, uh, even the old tried and true pen test. Um, but really, your best friend in this category is if you have a red team that understands the state of your environment and can de- and can test before and after, uh, that's a fantastic way to validate that your controls have, in fact, accomplished what you set out to do. It's really Mm -hmm. around, have we captured the intent more so than just, can we check the box? So uh, to be fair, you obviously have a vested interest in this next question, but what's the right agency industry partnership look like for success in zero trust? So I, I really think that every partnership that agencies have needs to have an aspect of zero trust to it. So if you are working with a vendor, it needs to be an important part of the relationship is validating assumptions, removing implicit trust, even in the underlying credentials that you use to collaborate uh, with with that partnership. Um, you need to implement zero trust controls around those. Um, so I think that's the, the first component. But really beyond that, uh, looking at Microsoft as a, as a trusted partner, we have a comprehensive look at zero trust. Uh, we don't do absolutely everything, but we have a, a great deal of coverage through the products that we have. And as a result, we can drive a lot of insights around what's working, what's not working, and help agencies move more quickly. We also have very broad partnership in the Zero Trust ecosystem. And so uh, very well-worn paths of how you integrate disparate technologies with Microsoft technology. So we can help make the introductions and the relationships to help you partner uh, with other vendors as well. When it comes to Zero Trust, working with what you have, being the most effective with the technology you already have in place, Mm -hmm. and making strategic investments to show measurable progress. So you use the term zero trust journey in that answer again. And so I want to go back to that lingo, that terminology, because another thing that you wrote recently was that there are different paths in these transformations. The journey can take you this direction or it can take you that direction. What's the importance of that makes this process more of an art than a science, I imagine. 
It, it absolutely does. And, and it, sometimes it generates confusion mm. when discussing best practices between organizations. They have a completely different view, completely different lens. Uh, we ran into this in industry as well as various vendors came up with their first zero trust solution. And uh, when it was sort of nascent, the vendors looked across and said, they look nothing like each other. How can they all be zero trust? Mm-hmm. And so uh, NIST grappled with that as well in, in 800-207. Um, and as we sort of mature zero trust, what we see is that that where you're starting from and that next right thing to do can look very different. Just as uh, if you're commuting to the office, uh, where you start from really impacts what the scenery looks like. Um, But as you get closer to your destination, neighborhoods start to look familiar. You recognize a coffee shop um, and, and now you have more to talk about with those colleagues. And so Zero Trust is really the same in that Every agency is going to have a different starting point based on their existing investments, based on uh, their strategy and their risk profile. But we're all headed in the same direction, and it's something that we can help each other with along the way. Uh, Final thought, Steve. That next right thing to do, if this whole concept is more art than science, I imagine at any given time in your journey, figuring out the next right thing to do might be at least 50-50. I mean, if I'm following your analogy... I generally know how to get home, but sometimes I might decide to take a a different route if I have extra time or if I'm in a big hurry. Right. I I think the the danger in the journey analysis is if I start putting artificial constraints on, on the path, right? So... If I, if I make arbitrary rules to make things simpler, and there's zero trust is a complex topic. Uh, the next right thing to do may not be complex, but having a, a broad overview can be complex. And so there's a lot of uh, push within industry or within agencies to say, um, zero trust is all about the data, or zero trust is all about the network, or zero trust is all about identity. And, and we want to pick one pillar because we feel like that's easier to wrap our heads around. Um, and that's fine if it's the next right thing to focus on. But that would be the same as on a journey saying we can only go north-south or we can only go east-west or uh, I'll only take back roads. I won't take the interstate. Now, you may be able to get there. Um, The odds are low, but you may be able to get there or it may make the journey super complicated. Um, And so simplifying the philosophy if it makes the journey more complicated is not a productive thing to do. So I think as we look at uh, really the guardrails for that zero trust journey, have a bird's eye view, um, have that GPS that's on your, uh, in, in your driver's seat, informing your direction, and you can choose how you want to detour. Uh, but don't put artificial constraints on the journey. Take a look at where you are, a pragmatic look. And, and I think that's our message to agencies is that it's not just that zero trust is possible. Zero trust is practical. Steve fail. Great to have you on the program. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. You can read more about Zero Trust in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. Coming next week, a change in the office of the Coast Guard C4IT CG6. The outgoing assistant commandant for C4IT, Rear Admiral David Dermanalian, is on Wednesday's Daily Scoop Podcast. You can catch that exit interview Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The president's management agenda has new strategy leads now to execute the pillars of each of the PMA's priorities. One of those strategy leads is Pam Coleman. She's Associate Director for Performance and Personnel Management at the Office of Management and Budget. Pam, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Where are we now with the president's management agenda? Some developments and some updates. Where do we stand today? Welcome. 
Thanks, Francis. Um, really a, a pleasure to be here. And I always like to take the opportunity to say uh, thank you to the folks who are also listening to you, because if you're listening to Francis's show, um, you care about government and you care about government in a way that um, perhaps the outside world uh, is not quite as informed about. So just thank you. And for those federal uh, civil servants out there and other public servants, thank you for your service. Um, because I don't think you're ever going to get thanked enough. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um, and that's really like the where we are with respect to the PMA and and how we've gotten to where we are. Um, I, I would just like to say that we're starting with a at a place where we're in an administration uh, with President Biden and Vice President Harris um, who have a vision for what we are doing here in the federal government. Um, and that our, the PMA, uh, the vision that we released, really shows a blueprint um, and the blueprint and the strategy leads fit into that blueprint along the continuum. Um, but at its core, uh, the, the blueprint is about delivering for Americans the government they deserve. And it's also about giving the federal employees the government that they deserve as well. So as we think about um, the, the vision that brought us together around our priorities, around workforce, around customer experience, around managing the business of government, um, all grounded in our values. And for those of you who are the, who are the PMA geeks like Francis and, and I are, um, uh, we're talking about equity, dignity, accountability, and results. And so those core values around our priorities um, are what guide, one, the selection of our priority uh, area leads. And those are members of the PMC. Those are the President's Management Council um, members who are deputy secretaries or, or the head of GSA or the head of OPM. Um, and they, uh, they came to a place with, with OMB and with our PMA team um, to select a group of leaders uh, with subject matter expertise across a number of different agencies uh, in our federal ecosystem, if you will. So we're, we look to select leaders with experience um, in particular subject matter areas and that we want to make sure we have an agency perspective, first and foremost, front and center, to help inform all of our efforts. Um, and I think finally, it's also important to see the PMA work in the context of the agency strategic plans, because at the beginning of every administration, it's not just a PMA, but we're looking at strategic plans over four years. So agency strategic plans and agency priority goals and joint agency priority goals and career staff across the entire administration, they were developing these, it's with their leadership, they're hard at work implementing them. So I think it's looking at like the nesting of all of that together so that we are maximizing what we do in the PMA with our strategy leads and that we do the same when it comes to our strategic planning process. Yeah, I wear that label as a PMA geek as a badge of honor, Pam, so I appreciate that. I did notice as I was looking at these strategy leads that there is a mix of not just people appointed by the Biden administration, but career officials as well. What's the importance of that? Uh, of having that voice involved in executing on these strategies? I think that's, it's so key, Francis. I mean, when we think about um, the, the very core of our federal government and how we get things done, it all comes down to the people. And, and while, you know, there are a number of political appointees and I'm one of them that are included in this, in this work, we are really sprinkled, right? We're sprinkles across the entire uh, federal system. And, making sure that the federal workforce, the folks with the deep expertise and deep time in the game and knowing like what levers work and what levers don't 
it's it's core to everything we're doing. That's why priority area number one in the entire PMA is about workforce, is about strengthen and empower the federal workforce. And I think when we look at what the president's uh, vision is for the PMA, but also from what he has said on day one, it's making sure we all remember that the federal career workforce is what is the engine of this federal government um, and that not tapping into their expertise, not maximizing what they have to offer, not respecting them, not including them, not empowering them. That's just, it's wasted effort and, and uh, illogical. <laughs> so the, the depth of the experience um, and the partnership is, is you know, I, I, don't, I don't think we can ever um, underestimate or undersell that. You mentioned that you are the strategy lead on one of these, and we'll talk about that later in our conversation, hopefully. Um, what is the criteria that you will use at the OMB level to evaluate how each of these strategies is undertaken and, and delivered upon? Well, um, I think we want to talk about, um, one, thinking about making sure that the, that the um, success metrics and the milestones are all done in concert with the strategy leads and the teams that they're putting together. So this is not a thou shalt do, this is a, we're doing this together and what makes most sense. Now, because OMB, because we've we've got um, the, the responsibility and we've got the reporting mechanism um, on performance.gov, for example, that we're gonna re be reporting publicly every quarter on how progress is going. Where OMB, the OMB-ness of us, will have regular deep dives with not only the priority area leads, um, of each area, right? Workforce, customer experience, managing the business of government, um, but also the, the president's management council and these priority area leads have been so plugged into the effort. So it is a multi-level um, a, a multi um, um, level of responsibilities that will all feed into the end result of like, are we getting there? Are we gonna meet our goals and how are we tracking them? And are we gonna talk about them? Yes. And are we gonna report them? Yes. And are we gonna get better if we need? Yes. So um, I think it's all about, you know, people talk about transparency and talk about like, yeah, of course, we're going to report. But when you when you really like lean into reporting, when you really lean into the whole point of reporting is to say, here's where we're going and here's how we can get better. And like everybody, let's search together to get better together. I want to try to get a sense for the sake of somebody at an agency who thinks this is going to be happening to me, you know, how will this affect the way that I do my job? I want to pull one of these just at, at random, and I'm not going to ask you to comment specifically on that strategy, but just how the strategy concept works in general. So I'm on strategy number two under uh, pillar number one, the workforce one, and this one is make every federal job a good job, et cetera. The strategy leads are Roland Edwards at DHS, Kristen McNally at Labor, and Nancy Spate at DOD. What will they do, those three people and their teams do specifically to contribute to the overall advancement of this individual strategy, make every federal job a good job, and the more broad one about building uh, a 21st century workforce? So um, excellent question, Francis. Thanks. So the, the folks that you mentioned are in their in agencies with um, one, a variety of workforces, right? Like we're looking at frontline workforce as well as administrative workforce, diffuse workforce around the country. Um, and that's really important. So I think just to say at, at, at base, are we getting the right information from the right people who can feed into a process? So, um, and so, yes, I'm gonna say we, we say yes, that that was intentional and we have found the right people. 
They, they are not only working individually by themselves, they are working one with uh, co-implementation leads. So we've got Margot Conrad, who's the executive director of the Chico Council. We've got Christy Daphnis, who is here on uh, PPM as the personnel lead. So the two of them are working together and they, so they are co-implementation co leads. You've also got the priority area leads of our three deputy secretaries. And then we've got a PMA team. So for the first time, ever in the history of the PMA, um, we have a team dedicated. Uh, they are our partners at uh, GSA who are specifically geared and working on the PMA. So they're working directly with um, with our prior our strategy area leads and our and our implementation leads. So it's like a lot of leads in this in my paragraph here. But the point is that each of those groups is bringing together expertise and attention to make sure that the action plan that comes out as a result of the informed by uh, deep subject matter expertise, informed by really good process that they put together an action plan that can be implemented across the entire system. So if you are in an agency right now and thinking like, well, here we go, what's gonna happen next? What you should know is that you are being, your interests are being represented at at multiple different levels, whether it's your DEPSEC, whether it's your Chico, whether it's on the Chico Council feeding in, for example, on strategy on priority area one. All of that together is helping inform an action plan that can be put into place by everybody. So it's not one entity saying, do it this way, not informed by, well, how does it really get executed at agency level? You've got agency folks saying, this is how it. This is how it works. This is what will work. This is what. This is what we can go for. This is what we've already done. Like uh, we've done that before. It didn't work. Like all of that is informing um, a process and then an action. And that reinforces too then the importance of the career folks as opposed to having it just be an administration effort too. I imagine, Pam. Oh, absolutely. So your uh, particular strategy is strategy one under priority priority two is delivering excellent, equitable, secure federal services and customer experience, and the strategy for which you are responsible is improving the service design, digital products, and customer experience management of federal high impact service providers by reducing customer burden, addressing inequities, and streamlining processes. So what do you do as the leader of that strategy to, again, to contribute to the overall effort of the CX priority? Great, thanks, Francis. So first I'll say that um, when we looked across the, uh, all the initiatives that were happening, whether that's in workforce initiatives, C, um, customer experience initiatives, or in managing the business of government, what we didn't want to do was for the sake of just creating something new by like saying, oh, here's a new, here's something new that we're going to do. If it was in, if it was important to pursue, if it was, we, if the time was right, then we would like to institute new initiatives. If it is work that is happening and needs to be lifted up, if it is work that is, um, needs a little extra attention when it comes to, um, for example, on CX, then we should, we should lift it up. And that's why it's included. It's not making up something that's new. It's saying like, we have high impact service providers. This is, they are selected, I'm sure folks know, but I'm gonna say anyway, they're selected because of the scale and the impact of their public face. So like food and nutrition services at USDA, that's a HISP. Veterans Health Administration, that's a HISP. These are big programs, they have deep impact. And if people wanna see the whole list, you can go to performance.gov, which is like our baby, right? Performance.gov holds all of this. So I'm the strategy lead here because 
The team I lead, which is performance and personnel management, includes a federal customer experience. And these service providers are required to submit customer experience capacity assessments and action plans and focused improvements and all of that public reporting to OMB. So OMB, what does it mean? Like I will say in like my positive, my positive nature, OMB means regular engagement. OMB means leadership attention is focused on it. OMB means you're going to get attention. It's going to be lifted up when you need to like pay a different attention with respect to uh, resourcing. Like what you want is a as OMB's attention. So the these HISP efforts also really align nicely with the new PMA effort of life experiences. And then uh, for strategy three over there, also improving the digital experiences. So what's also great is it's not just me, right? Nothing is ever just one person named. Like, <laughs> I, you know, yay for me, but no, that's not how it works. Um, so even in OMB, it's not just me and, PP, and PPM and, and, per, and performance of personal management. It's our, it's our office of federal um, uh, CIO. It's U.S. Digital Services. It's all of us, right? It takes a village, right? It takes all of us to be able to make sure that this work gets done and done well and that the agencies have the support they need. It all comes down to what can we do to support the work at agency level? It's nice to have ideas, but how do you support the people doing the work? Pam, uh, you wrote recently as part of this of uh, as part of his administration's efforts to transform service delivery and customer experience. President Biden charged federal leaders to identify five key experiences we can improve on. That approach is a little bit different than I think what has been done with the PMA in the past. And you you listed in this uh, blog post approaching retirement, recovering from a disaster, navigating transition from active duty to civilian life, birth and early childhood for low income mothers and children facing a financial shock and becoming newly eligible for critical support programs. Those are five good ones. Um, How did you identify those as the first five to take on? And what's the process by which you expect to be able to go through everything that every agency does and know that you've got your hands around all of the things that someone at an agency does, for example, for recovering from a disaster, given that there are so many different pieces, different places across the government. Well, um, thanks, Francis. And I will note that um, on the one hand, sometimes I have to just like completely explain, like, why is it even worth it, right? Like, why is it worth it to to untangle this really complicated set of websites and offices and phone numbers and all of that to like help a person um, work through work through the bureaucracy, essentially. And the PMA and the president's executive order back in December, this was all about like, how do we help navigate? How do we help the American people navigate our services better? And how do we reduce burden around our services? So these life experiences that you just described, they, they are like, they are a new way to look at it, but it's not a new way that the American people approach it. Like if something happens and you are navigating a disaster, if, if some, a tornado blows through your town and you lose your home, like you are, you have an, you have an experience. One, it's a tr- terrible traumatic experience. Then you're like, your house is either blown away or you're, you're navigating a lot of different kind of um, uh, repairs that need to be done. And you need to figure out how to go like, huh, I have to go to HUD. Hmm. What is HUD? I don't know what that is. I have to go to FEMA. I've heard of FEMA. I saw it on TV. Uh, I have to go. We actually had my small business. I, I was doing, running that out of my garage. 
uh, I think I go to small business, but there's so many different places. Now you're traumatized. You're like upset. This worst, terrible thing has just happened to you and you've got to navigate how the system goes. So the putting together these, these journey maps, it's called. So like the actual human is having an experience. Where do they go in all these places? So we, as a federal system, to your really getting back to your question is that we have gone back and looked at all the different places that it, that uh, from an agency perspective and asking right we're not we're not just assuming we're going back to the agencies where this work has been going on and this work is happening on an individual basis for the for that the, the uh, person going through the experience and we've said we want to know more about what happens when a person comes into your system. We want to know where do they go next? What happens next? What happens next in the logic train? So we have done a deep dive with ongoing collaboration and investigation with agencies who are leading on this work, asking at their different points of connection with an individual in who would be coming through the system and then scrubbing it down. So okay, I have to go to SBA, but then might I have, where might I have to go next? Where am I? And we keep asking that question and you'll find, and what we have found through this over the course of this year, but also uh, years past that the federal career staff, they know what happens next, right? It's not a mystery to them because we are on the side of the bureaucracy and they want it to be better for the lived experience for the human on the other side. So we've gone through and scrubbed all through. And we selected these particular five because they are moments of deep connection. Is it every single one? No, but are these the first five that have deep meaningful impact for, for a huge amount of people around this country and the, and the world? And how can we be better at figuring out on these particular life experiences so we can make the changes in the system that need to be made, use those as patterns for additional changes and help people in the meantime, that an individual who's going to survive a disaster is going to have a better experience on the other side, which is which is good for the American people. In the time that we have left, Pam, I want to think maybe a little more conceptually than tactically about, we've talked about tactical stuff so far in this conversation. Just about every administration at some point in time decides it wants to reorganize something. I mean, it, it moves a box from this place to that place or this agency to that agency and so on. It strikes me that what you're going for here, whether it's intentional or not, may make that whole concept moot. Because if each digital, if each organization in government is digitally connected potentially to every other organization in government, the way that you just described it in the customer experience way, then I don't, I don't need to move Bureau X from agency A to agency B. They can just be connected digitally and they can stay where they are. And this idea of ripping something out by the root and planting it in the next yard doesn't really apply anymore, does it? Yeah, that's, um, you know, philosophically, that's really interesting, but I will, uh, and I know we're going to stay up philosophically and not go down tactically. Well, but you if you go about, wherever you want. This is- <laughs> if we, if we think about um, the changes that we all know we would like to make, right, we would all like for uh, the American people to have access to government services in a, in a similar way, in a similar way, right? Not exactly, but a similar way to how they can access services in the private sector. And not, guess what? Not everybody wants to go online and get their work done. Like some people want to, like they want to see another human face-to-face in an office. Okay. So we have to understand that there are different ways that the American people would like to interface with their government. So, but the more that we make available in a way that is um, uh, that is desirable 
for everyone. So I would like to go online and help my mom figure out her retirement benefits. And I don't can't get online till 11 p.m. So I want to make sure that I have a digital uh, access to SSA, Social Security Administration. I want to make sure I have that. Or I want to make sure um, that, you know, we have people who can go into uh, a small business administration and they want to see like, just like they go to a bank and they want to see a loan officer, they want to go sit in a small business administration and see people. So, but the more we can make available across the entire administration from a digital perspective and to the American people, whether that's through modular building blocks, as we do this over time, each time we make an improvement, it allows for the system, right? It allows for the, the administration as a system to make a culture change and say, okay, we've now made a change. We are now connected in this certain way. The system is gonna say, the system will accept it. Okay, we're connected. Then you make another change. This is not gonna all happen overnight, right? We're talking about transformation. Transformation happens over the course of, you know, if you can get transformation to happen over the course of months or a couple of years, like that's what we're going for, transformation. So transformation happens not with a snap of a fingers or a magic wand. This is hard work to get it done, but as we do, the modular building blocks of every success that we have allows the entire system to grow and the entire system to organize itself around that new way of doing work. So I feel really encouraged, um, you know, whether or not any kind of reorganization for any reasons are necessary um, or are advantageous in the, in the future, that's to be determined. But in the here and the now, we are in a place where we are going to be able to make, make substantial and substantive changes that are going to help the entire system, which means helping the American people. And at the end of the day, that's what we all want. That culture change that you just described, Pam, is that something that you and your colleagues and peers are intentionally trying to institute? Or are you just confident that it's going to happen as a result of the tactical changes that we've discussed? Oh, I think you can never um, take advantage or take for granted, rather, that culture change will happen. I think any side of change um, requires change management. Any kind of change management requires uh, a communication intention. Um, and I'm not talking about like a communication plan, but I'm talking about intention on how do we talk to each other? How do we talk at all levels of the system, whether that's frontline, whether that's in the White House, um, how do we maintain that steady drumbeat? Um, change management only happens when you have an idea and a vision and tactic and you keep repeating it, you believe it and you repeat it. And then like the PMA, right? It's simple, it's easy to remember, it's workforce, it's customer experience, it's managing the business of government. That itself is a change management, right? From previous PMAs. So everything that we do intentionally around communicating these values and these ideas and these tactics, I think will add up to, you know, we will see, this is how we do things around here. That's what culture is. So the more we do it and the more we talk about it with each other, I think the better chance we have. Pam Coleman, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Pleasure to be here. You can read more about the president's management agenda in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the Daily Scoop podcast. This program is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.